Well, this morning, um, I'm beginning a new series, uh, uh, working through the story, the narrative of Elisha in 2 Kings. Okay, so 2 Kings. And I'll do more of an uh, introduction to uh, both 2 Kings and to um, uh, how Elisha fits in. Um, but because you can see we've got a longer scripture passage, I'm going to just spend time with this story, which really um, uh, works well just on its own as a, as a narrative. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as we hear the word of God. So I'm reading the entire chapter of 2 Kings, um, chapter 3. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, He clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people as your people, my horses as your horses. And then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here? Through whom we may inquire of the Lord, then one of the king, uh, then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah, and Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him, and Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you, your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. 
And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of of land with stones. The next morning about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir, Hereseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through the opposite, uh, break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Would you pray with me? Lord, all we can do for the sake of our spiritual growth is plant and water but it is for you to come and bless and cause us to grow and mature in Christ. And we thank you and give you the glory for the growth we have experienced. Come now, Spirit of the Lord, once again, and bless the preaching of your holy, inspired word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you are um, following on your outline... Being a trained professional, (laughs) yeah, you know it's coming, right? Um, I'm going to skip point one, okay? So I'm going to just go right into point two, and uh, I'll come back to just some of the background um, in in the future. But uh, for the sake of time, I I just want to focus in on this this story. And... um, and, and one of the things that, that you should feel right away, without probably being familiar with this, this narrative, with this story, um, is that it's puzzling. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense, um, uh, though it's not itself hard to follow. Do you have that slide of the map? Is that available? Oh, there it is. Okay, good. All right, so this is a map of ancient Israel, and... Um, <laughs> I'm thinking as I look at these colors, my kids tease me about being uh, colorblind, but don't pay any attention. But you'll see that the, the center is the northern kingdom of Israel. At the, at the time uh, of this story, the kingdom is split between north and south. And so that yellow middle area is Israel, the northern kingdom, where Jehoram is the king. If you've got an NIV, it's, jo- uh, it's just Joram. Uh, they just translate it a little differently, but it's the same king. And then if you go down to the brown region of Judah, um, you can see uh, that, that that's uh, where the southern kingdom is located. And um, 
The arrow is the path. It's just, a, you know, I can see some professor just whoop. Um, but in general, this is the path that the northern kingdom's army would travel in through Judah. And then the plan was to join up with forces in Edom and the king of Edom, which was a client state of the southern kingdom, and to attack Moab. So the, 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 where the battle takes place is in that green region on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. So that's the Dead Sea. And to go up through the south, probably so they can gather troops from Edom, and also so that, you know, probably the south is wilderness, and it's, it's probably less fortified than the northern border of Moab, which is on uh, a border with Israel. At this time, Israel covers both east and west sides of the Jordan River. And so, um, the story itself is, is fairly straightforward. Um, this story takes place roughly 853 B.C., Okay, 853, um, about 120 years from the passing of King David. So uh, a, a little over a century from the time of King David's reign. And King Jehoram um, is seeking the aid of, of the southern king, King Jehoshaphat, uh, in order to invade Moab. The, the reason being is that Moab um, has rebelled. Uh, Jehoram, following his uh, uh, older brother, they're new kings. And Moab has been a vassal country. They are under the dominion, under the rule of the northern kingdom. And as part of their vassalage, they are required to render as tribute 100,000 lambs and then the wool of 100,000 rams. This is not an insignificant amount of, of resources and wealth. This would have been critical, in fact, to the northern kingdom's economy. This would have also been oppressive. This would have been difficult uh, for the, the, uh, the Moabites to render this level of tribute uh, on an annual basis. So as a result, the, the king of Moab, uh, his name is Misha, um, he decides this is a good time to uh, work for independence. And this is a good time to you know, throw off the, the, the colonizers and, and to uh, 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 gain our independence. And so, um, the result of this is this uh, causes the northern king to go to war. And so, they begin their march. Again, you can see through that, that southern region uh, on the, the south side, or actually, much of that region around the Dead Sea is very dry. It's desert. It's, it's uh, a barren wilderness. And so they're going around that southern part of the Dead Sea, and the, the troops, after seven days, they have no water. And so suddenly, um, the kings are, are panicking. Uh, what are we going to do? The Lord has led us here, is what the northern king says. The Lord has led us here in order to um, destroy us, is what he says, to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Uh, and it's only at that point that they call in um, for a prophet of God. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's a servant. One, there's this little detail that works its way, not only in First and Second Kings, but really throughout the scriptures, where it's often, you know, God reveals himself not often always through the, the, the powerful, the elites, the kings, but it's through these unnamed, anonymous um, uh, individuals through whom this knowledge. So a servant of the king, uh, Jehoshaphat, says, hey, there's a, a man of God, Elisha. And this passage serves to introduce Elisha to these kings in terms of the greater narrative uh, in Second Kings. And um, so they decide to go down and, and meet with the prophet Elisha. 
Elisha tells them, well, at first, he, he wants nothing to do with the northern king. The northern king, even though he's, you know, this, the, the text tells us he's not as bad as his mom and dad. He's not as bad as Ahab and Jezebel. He does uh, put an end to, uh, or at least he puts away this, this pillar to Baal, and he himself does not seem to be a worshiper of Baal. But what we'll see is he's just very half-hearted um, and largely unbelieving. And so Elisha, the prophet, says, well, I, I don't... <laughs> If it weren't for King Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even be standing here. That's what Elisha says. But because of God, and King Jehoshaphat is a godly king. And, and because of him, Elisha says, I, I will, you know, I'll give you this prophecy. And the prophecy is God will supply water. He'll do it miraculously. Uh, and um, you will have success as you go into the land. Um, you, you will uh, uh, be able to attack all their fortified cities. And you'll be able to uproot their trees and, and decimate the land. Um, but there's an ambiguity because Elisha doesn't actually tell him what the, the ultimate outcome will be. And so everything, um, the water appears and, and they're able to successfully trap, you know, the Moabite army. They, they see these pools of water and because of the reflection of the sun and probably the tint of the, uh, of the soil and sand around it, they mistake these pools of water for blood. And they assume that the, the, you know, like in a holy war, uh, the, their God has intervened and, and the troops have just gone to war against each other and, and slaughtered it, um, themselves. And so they move in for the spoils. But of course, uh, they're, they misunderstand the situation and Israel is, has a, um, able to uh, render this uh, terrible defeat and loss of life upon the Moabite soldiers. They work through the land. Everything is going swimmingly for the, the kings of Israel uh, until they get to the capital city um, of Kir Haraseth. And even there, the king can't burst through. His last-ditch effort, send his you know, 700 crack swordsmen and break through the weakest part of the line, but they fail. And this is where the story, there's a twist. This is where there's a surprise ending that just leaves the reader puzzled. Like, what was this about? Because they get to the walls of the capital city, and they have the, the, the king is surrounded. His army's been pretty much uh, neutralized. Um, and then suddenly this abominable event takes place, this, uh, this sacrifice of the king's oldest son. He's, he's, we're told he, this is the crown prince, the one who's to rule in King Misha's place. And strangely, this, this, um, this wrath breaks out. And I think the author is intentional and in not describing what that wrath is. Is that the wrath of God? Is that the wrath of, of the people? Um, he doesn't tell us. Uh, but suddenly, in the last two sentences of the entire narrative... We just read, there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. What in the world is going on? Uh, This is the twist that most people reading the story would not have seen coming. What began with God leading the Moabites into a trap ends with the Israelites led to an unexpected defeat. We're not told exactly what kind of losses the Israelites suffer, but it was enough that in spite of all they had invested, they are forced to retreat hastily. And we know that the Moabites, in fact, secured their independence at that time. They never again would fall under um, the, the dominion of Israel, northern or southern kingdom. And 
this is one of those um, uh, times where we actually have written resources uh, from the Moabite side describing this battle and what they ascribe as a victory to their god, Chemosh. Okay, so Chemosh was this pagan god, uh, a kind of a national god of the Moabites. So we have, you know, this, this uh, historical resource from outside the Bible that confirms the historicity of what is recorded here. So this is a jarring conclusion for the people of God. We come to the end and we think that the author has in some sense manipulated us, that he set us up for this very strange conclusion. And so the question for us is, you know, just what are we to make? And I'm sure, that, okay, like you're saying, yeah, Rich, what, what are we to make of this story? Like, what is going on here? Well, you know, this narrative is something, you know, like how uh, often modern movies have this, you know, violent twist at the end. I remember the first time that I saw um, M. Night, I think it's Shyamalan. I, I guess that's as close as I can get. Um, but he, this movie called The Sixth Sense, it's, it came out a long time ago. Um, but you watch this movie and you get to the end and like the rug is pulled out from under your feet and what you thought was going on was something totally different. And when, you, when I saw that first, I thought, oh, the director has set us up and it doesn't even make sense like there are no clues for this, that this is just this arbitrary ending. But then you go back and watch the movie and you realize that in fact the author has put clues throughout the movie that's leading up to this conclusion and almost to the point where it's a necessary conclusion. Uh, You can see I'm not giving away. I'm not trying to spoil it for you completely. Um, But that's something in a sense what's going on in this narrative. What, what we fail to see in reading it are these clues that the author has placed in the narrative that lead up to this conclusion. What are some of those clues? Um, well, and let me just go back. So the author sets this up because if you read this, there are hints of Israel's story working through the wilderness, and and in the wilderness, uh, traveling under Moses, God miraculously supplies water for the people so they they don't thirst to death. And you have this similar feeling as they're wandering through the wilderness, and you're thinking to yourself, did someone not plan this very well? Um, But nevertheless, and and as they enter into Moab, you you have this language that is very promised land-like. In fact, um, some of the language uh, is very similar to the battle language um, of of uh, Israel, when under the leadership of Joshua, they go into Canaan, and, um, and they enter in, and they successfully take Jer- uh, Jericho. Some of the similar language is being used in this narrative, and I think that the author is doing this to make it look like this is an Exodus kind of narrative. This is like a re-capitulation you know, of what God has previously done with Israel, until it's not until we get to the end, and in fact, it's a story about Moabites' exodus, about how King Misha, like Moses, and notice the similarity in names, leads his Moabites from oppressive servitude to the Israelites and establishes their independence. Well, there are clues that not all uh, is what it appears to be. Looking, lurking in the background of the story is a prohibition in the law of Moses, and it prohibits Israel from even attacking Moab. 
In Deuteronomy 2.9, we read, And the Lord said to me, Moses, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar, that is the land of Moab, to the people of Lot for a possession. In the law of Moses, the Israelites were not to attack or bring the Moabites under uh, uh, their dominion because these were kind of distant cousins of the Israelites. These were the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And this was the land that God had given to them. So already, you know, if you're familiar with the law, you kind of have this little discordant um, uh, thought in the back, like, what are they doing uh, attacking Moab in the first place? And then there are these words of Jehoshaphat in response to King Jehoram's uh, uh, request to join with the north in battle. In verse 7, Jehoshaphat says, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, if it hadn't been more than a year since we we last were in 1 Kings, you probably would have heard this resonating with a similar story that takes place right at the end of 1 Kings. And at the end of 1 Kings, there's a very similar story where the king of the north, in this case Ahab, goes down to the same king, Jehoshaphat, much earlier in his reign. And Jehoshaphat has the exact same response, word for word, to King Ahab. And if you remember that story, um, Jehoshaphat and Ahab are sitting on thrones, and all the prophets of Baal, the pagan prophets, are are telling King Ahab, yes, go to battle with your enemies uh, to the north, and we will give you this glorious victory. And Jehoshaphat, right at the start, says... Is there no God or prophet of Yahweh that we may inquire uh, to seek the counsel of the Lord? And so they bring this prophet Micaiah. And if you remember Ahab, um, Ahab says, oh, well, there is this one prophet of Yahweh, Micaiah, but he never says anything good about me. And so Micaiah comes and says, you know, at first, oh, yeah, you'll have wonderful victory. And then Ahab sees that he's being sarcastic and says, no, tell us what you really think. And he says, well, here's the truth. God has sent a lying spirit into these prophets that are telling you is going to be glorious victory. And he's done it so that he will lure you into battle where you will not only suffer defeat, but where you, O king, will be killed. This is God's judgment. Now, The prophet Micaiah is telling him straight away, this is what the Lord is doing. Now, Ahab sort of half believes this um, enough that he still goes into battle. He doesn't call the battle off, but if you recall, he goes in disguise, right? And this one lone Aramean soldier gets, you know, you read this, one arrow gets shot into the air almost randomly at King Jehoshaphat, but it happens to strike Ahab in his own chariot and kills him just as Micaiah said would happen. Now, all this to say that that those words of Jehoshaphat are a callback. And they're reminding us, do you remember that story where God was using this kind of of counsel as a judgment? That it all was not as it seemed there? And be careful, all may not seem uh, uh, on the surface, uh, as it seems on the surface here either. And then we also have this, this this um, point that Jehoshaphat doesn't begin, as he does at least in the previous um, uh, narrative, 
He doesn't start by asking for God's counsel. It's only when they are in desperate circumstances, when they're in mortal danger, that the kings decide, oh, well, maybe we should seek a prophet to see what God's counsel is about our situation. And so, um, uh, uh, indeed, um, even in the prophecy itself, there is this little bit of a red flag where Elisha tells them uh, that they're going to throw stones on all the land, they're going to cut down all the trees, and they're going to stop up all the springs. This too, if you know the law of Moses, should have created this kind of siren to go off. Why? Because, again, the law of Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? This kind of, you know, going to ground and desolating the land was actually uh, prohibited by the law of Moses. But, but everybody just seems to overlook these little uh, discrepancies, these, these, these discordant uh, words that, that come forth until we get to the end. And so the author tells us that wrath broke out after the sacrifice of the oldest son, the crown prince. He doesn't tell us whose wrath this is. You know, on the one, is this the wrath of the Moabite god, Chemosh? That's what they believe. But again, um, from the, the Christian or the, um, uh, the, the believing writers, the prophets uh, writing the Old Testament, it's very clear that these were not true gods. These, these are, you know, these are idols. Um, there may be a demonic power behind them, but, th- but they are not gods. They don't have this power. Is this perhaps the fury of the soldiers? That may be the case, that this is indicating that somehow the soldiers that were left were so incensed by the sacrifice of the king's son that they just went wild in in battle. But this still doesn't get us off the hook because if God actually wanted to give the Israelites victory, this would have been no problem for God. He's already proven his power by supplying the water, by proving his word, his prophecies came true. And the author is very clear that technically speaking, every word of Elisha came true just as it was stated. All the cities were attacked. The land was desolated. The the soldiers uh, were killed. The water was provided for, including the capital city was attacked. But there's just this little ambiguity, right? (laughs) It doesn't tell us the outcome. And so we're left with this idea. If God wanted to give deliverance, he could have but he chooses not to. Even if this is the fury of, you know, the Moabite soldiers, God is permitting this because this is, in fact, God's will. Um, God is taking sides in this. Uh, according to his sovereign rule, uh, in spite of this, this, uh, this sacrifice of the king's son to a pagan god, Yahweh takes the side of the Moabites. And so, This is a great reversal. We thought this was a a recapitulation of Israel's exodus, and instead it is the Moabites' uh, exodus that we are reading about. They are the ones who are experiencing freedom from the Pharaoh-like bondage and oppression of Israel. Now, what are just some thoughts around this? 
This story shows us just some important truths about our relationship with God and God's work in history. Um, This passage shows us something I think C.S. Lewis expresses in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia about um, what God is like, about what Christ is like. And uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when confronted by the idea of Aslan, the the lion, the great Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, Lucy asks Mr. Beaver, (laughs) is Aslan safe? That's her question. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And then Mr. Tumnus says, he's wild, you know, not a tame lion. Not a tame lion. And what Lewis is trying to show us is he's trying to teach us something about God, that God is not a tame God. He is not one to be domesticated. He is not one to just simply you go to like, you know, this employee uh, that's, uh, that you're paying for and who's just waiting at your beck and call uh, for orders or for uh, a call for help. This is not the way we are to treat God, but that's exactly the way uh, the, Is- uh, the Israelites treat the Lord. The psalmist declares in Psalm 18, 26, to the pure, you show yourself pure, but to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. And there's something of that. That appears to be exactly what's happening in this passage. God is to be approached with reverence. He is to be approached with awe. He is not a tame God, but he is good. And this also shows us that our understanding of what God is doing at any given moment is likely limited and incomplete. We are tempted to think that we are more in control of our individual life story than is usually warranted. We neither control our beginning nor our end. It is God who is the Alpha and the Omega, not us. And this shouldn't surprise us given our, con- our conviction that God is indeed, that he is sovereign, that he is God. We are not, that he is in control over all things. Scriptures teach us that often the purposes of God are hidden from us. We think that God's will and purposes are leading perhaps our nation or our family or our individual lives in a certain direction with a certain outcome. And then we are completely surprised when there is a reversal in our lives. God flips the script as he does in this narrative. And part of the reason for this is that God's purposes, his wisdom, it's beyond us. And in other ways, it's also a reminder that sometimes God flips the script in our lives as a test. What's the test? The test is even when circumstances fail around us, Will we continue to trust God? Will we continue to trust Christ? We believe that God is not only sovereign, but that he is good. We believe he's not only sovereign, but he is wise. And he is a God of love. And he is working all things, ultimately, for his glory and for the good of his people. But if I were to prioritize that, I would put his glory as first, And then our good. 
we also need to reflect on the truth that the greatest surprise ending, a double surprise ending, in fact, is the gospel. For God gave his own son, the crown prince, to suffer the horror of crucifixion outside the walls of Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies, and that followed by a final amazing twist, the glorious resurrection on the third day. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord of all things. You are working all things according to your own purposes and glory. And we are grateful that you have called us to be involved actively in carrying out your will in a sinful world. Give us wisdom to know how to act in ways that further your purposes. And we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.